Take your Bibles, Numbers chapter 22, verse number 26. And as we've studied this sermon series, we've really... I didn't necessarily intend it to go this way, but this is the way that the Scriptures have taken us. It's really become a study on finding God's will and doing God's will in the Christian life. I believe it's important in a teenager's life, certainly, and I'll preach on that many times to the teenagers... But I believe it's equally, if not more important, in an adult's life. With all the decisions that we have to make with mortgages and kids and you know, jobs, we have a lot of things going on. So it's very important for us to find God's will. Numbers chapter 22, verse number 26, we'll begin reading. The Bible says, And the angel of the Lord went further, and stood in a narrow place where was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee, that thou hast smitten me these three times? Balaam said unto the ass, Because thou hast mocked me, I would that there were a sword in mine hand, for now would I kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass, upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said, Nay. <laughs> I love it. It's just a great portion of Scripture. Verse number 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. Now don't, don't, over, don't read over that. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down, and, bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. And the ass saw me and turned from me these three times. Unless she had turned from me, surely now also I had slain thee and saved her alive. And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displease thee, I will get me back again. And the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask tonight that you'd be with us in this time of Bible study. Lord, I pray that you would allow me liberty to preach your word, and I pray that you would give me complete direction as I try to do so. Lord, may the Holy Spirit be working in hearts this evening, I ask. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. amen. Now in our brief study, our hero of our story has come a pretty good ways. When we first were introduced to Balaam, as I've mentioned before, He's somewhat of an anomaly in Scripture. He's a unique character. As I can tell, he is the only non-Jewish prophet in Scripture. And there's a little debate about that, but truly he's a rare character to say the least. And when we're first introduced to him, we have to be honest, he sounds like a guy who is sold out to God. Remember what the circumstances around all of this were, was... Uh, the king of Moab, uh, Balak, was needing some help. He uh, realized that if Israel fought against him and stood against him, he stood no chance. So he went to the people of Midian, got them on his side, and he said, even with Midian and Moab, we stand no chance. And so he decided to get a spiritual aspect involved, and that spiritual aspect was eventually Balaam. He said, if I can have these, this nation and my nation plus Balaam, I believe we can take the children of Israel. So he acquired Balaam's talents to curse the nation of Israel and to bless him in his pursuits of defeating the nation of Israel. And when they first approached Balaam, he sends some princes and he says, Hey, we, we, my king, Balak, he needs you to come curse this people. It's a large number of people. He's very intimidated about the, the fight that's going to ensue. And he needs you because he really believes that you have the authority to bless them or bless us. And, and if, if you bless us, he thinks we'll win. And Balaam says, I'll go in and ask the Lord what he wants me to do, but I, I can't go against what he would say. 
And so that night he goes into his chamber and he comes out the next morning. He says, fellas, I'm sorry. The word of the Lord came to me and I cannot go with you. They're disappointed. They return back to Balak and they say, he said he can't come. And Balak says, okay, well, I'm not going to give up that easy. And so he, he sends princes more honorable than the previous. And if the devil's trying to tempt you, the temptations usually only increase. And so Balak sends princes a little bit more honorable than the previous, with a little better promises than the previous. And that's really the way the devil works. If one job opportunity doesn't get you to come, a little bit higher salary may. And so what he says, Balaam, you don't understand, we really need you. And, and Balak will give you anything. He'll, he'll fill up his house full of gold and silver and you can have it all. And then they say, and beyond all that, King Balak will do anything you ask him to do. Like, he will owe you a favor. And so Balaam says, well, I, guys, I sounds pretty good and all, but I can't do anything unless God allows me to. Balaam goes into his chambers once again, and God says, okay, they're pretty persistent, but my will hasn't changed for you, Balaam. The only way that you go with them now is if they come and retrieve you in the morning. And so the Bible, almost as if uh, you're in a movie set, and the, 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 the next picture you see is Balaam's alarm clock going off. And there he is, up and ready, already dressed in his, his uh, prophet's garments, you know, like he didn't even wear PJs to bed. He just wore his robe and whatever prophets wear to bed. And he, he springs out of the covers and he goes and he gets them, which was in direct conflict of what God had told him to do. And as we've studied, I believe, and you can, you can believe whatever you want, but I personally believe at that moment, Balaam stepped out of God's will and into his own will. And now we've kind of fast-forwarded in the story, and we looked at some warning signs about when Christians step out of God's will. What are some things, some red flags that may appear? And, and, and really, the donkey that Balaam was riding on gave us all those. Things would get harder. It would be like you're almost standing still as you're trying to pursue your goals and plans. Your life will get difficult, and that's exactly what happens for Balaam. Balaam has essentially become a completely different man than we began to study. First of all, his convictions have completely changed. Remember the guy that was so strong and convicted when he says, I can't go unless God allows me to. And then just a little bit heavier temptation. It's like the man that we first were introduced to completely changes. Christian, do you have convictions? I mean, I'm not talking about preferences. I, 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 frankly, I don't care if you're wear, your, your wife wears culottes or, or whatever. I, I really don't care. I'm not talking about preferences. I'm talking about convictions. Amen. Convictions never change regardless of the time period that you're living in. Convictions don't change no matter what the law says, no matter what's going on in the world that we live in, no matter what CNN and NBC and ABC and Fox and all the other ones, the, uh, all the other ones that really don't matter, uh, Al Jazeera and all the other uh, news stations you may listen to, regardless of what they say, convictions are unchanging. But His changed. That's what the world wants to do to you, Christian. Don't, don't, don't confuse it. The world wants you to become noodle-backed. They want you to feel ashamed of who you are because you're an old-fashioned fuddy-duddy. No, I, I'm not old-fashioned. This book's pretty timeless. And this book's never changing, and so I, I've always believed this book. I'm not old-fashioned. I just share Bible beliefs. And so whatever you think about that, you can call it what it may. But I agree with God. Amen. Do you have convictions? This man has completely changed. It's like a totally different character. Not only did his convictions change, but his communication with God changed. Remember at the start of our story, how wonderful would it be, adult, if, if you had the... The power with God that if your boss came to you and said, hey, I've got a job opportunity for you in Ohio, and it's going to be great pay, and, and man, you're going to be promoted, and, and you say, okay, well, I'm going to go home tonight, and I'll pray about it, and then tomorrow I'll have an answer for you, and I'll know for sure what God's will is. 
And then you go home and you say, all right, honey, I'm going to close the bedroom doors here and don't bother me unless you're cooking steak, in which case we can postpone the prayer time. But uh, don't bother me. And kids, you just keep to yourself. I'm, I'm going to go in here and find God's will. And all it takes for you to find God's perfect will in your life is one night kneeling by your bed and you say, oh, I'm in complete peace with what God's will for me and my family is. How many of you would like that to be the case in your life? But for me, what I've noticed, it's not always that easy, is it? When we seek counsel, we pray about it, we try to feel in our hearts whether or not we have peace. And, and, and even still, when we step out on the ledge of doing something that might challenge our faith, we're still uncomfortable the whole time. That's been my experience about finding God's will. But here... This man started out so easily communicating with God, it's almost like he had him on text message. And then just a day later, God puts an angel in his path, and he has no idea. And if, if the angel was not enough, the angel is bearing a sword, and we find out in what we read tonight, he was packing and ready to use it. And yet Balaam had no idea. Christian, when you start following your own path, you know what happens between your communication with you and God? It gets put on hold. And I believe God may be sending all sorts of signs. He may be saying, no, don't go there. Well, the other day I was in the airplane and I, I saw the airplane trying to uh, turn there into the little... Uh, gate area and I saw some guys down there with some glowing sticks and they were kind of maneuvering us in and I always wondered how they got the wheels on the lines every time. I can't even park my truck within the lines and they're parking an airplane wheels on the lines and, and then I realized there's some dudes down there telling them where to go. And I believe God in a lot of our lives like those men are, are standing there with arms stretched out. No, don't go there. Don't, that's not my will for you. You're, you're following your own path. Follow me. But so often because we are seeking our own path, we can't hear God. And I'll tell you, frankly, as I read this story, it is a shame what following his own will has done to our hero Balaam. It's made him a prophet who can't even hear the God that he preaches about. Amen. He's, he's a shell of himself. He's followed his own path. But now as we read tonight, we're starting to see God finally get his attention. And it takes a lot of uh, attention-getting tactics, but God no, nonetheless gets his attention, and, and Balaam realizes he's in the wrong, and he, and he starts to fix what he messed up. I want to draw your attention to verse 35, and I want to ask you a question that may challenge your thinking. The Bible says, And the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Here's a question for you. What was God's word that came to Balaam the first time, whether or not he should go with the, the princes of Balak? What was the first word from God? Thou shalt not go. It was actually very clear. When they came to him the second time, what was the word from God the second time? The first time was thou shalt not go. The second time was you should only go if they approach you first. And then Balaam stepped out of God's will into his will. Now, as Balaam realizes his error, he looks at God and he says, God, I'll, I'll go wherever you want me to. I, I've messed up and I, I want to get back into your will. I want to step out of my will into your will. Now what does God say? No, now you go with them. Here, here's the question. As Balaam pursued his own will, did God adapt his own will to match Balaam's? Well, Balaam's getting his way. Well, he's going with him. That was the case the whole time. His will was that he would go follow these men. And I believe it's purely out of motivation for the honor and the riches that would come. But nonetheless, he wanted to go. Now he's getting to go. So, 
why would God's will all of a sudden align with Balaam's? Did you know, Christian, there's a big difference between God's perfect will for your life and His permissible will for your life? When we start to follow our own path to the point where we are so blinded to God that we get so past the point of return, now God has to fix things that He had no plan of fixing before. I'll give you an example. A lot of times I have teenagers... May not these teenagers, these are good teenagers. I'm proud of these teenagers, but I have a whole other pastel of teenagers that I, I'm not proud of at all. But, but these are my good ones. Now, if you tell the other teenagers I'm not proud of them, I'm t- telling them you're a liar and I'm not proud of you. <laughs> but I have had teenagers in the past in the youth department, despite all the warnings and all the biblical things that say, you know, not, be not unequally yoked, I've had teenagers begin to date unsaved people. And one of the things I've heard before is, well, he's saved, he just doesn't go to church. (laughs) Okay. And I've seen this take place, and I've seen the relationship get to a point that gets very serious, and I've even seen them begin to talk about marriage. And I've even seen Christian teenagers marry either backslidden or completely lost teenagers. And then I've seen that relationship progress to the point what started on uneven ground has only gotten shakier. Here's a question. Were they in God's will when they were dating? No. Were they in God's will once they got married? Probably not. But now if that person comes to God and says, God, I realize I've made some big mistakes. I realized that there was a portion of my life I was not seeking you at all. I need your help, though. Does God automatically say, No, I can't help you. You're too far gone. No, that's not what He says. That's not my God. What does He say? Okay, I'll help you get through this. See, God's perfect will was for that teenager to follow Scripture and date and find the right person for them to marry. But God's permissible will now will allow them to get through the relationship they're in. There's a big difference, though. And Christian, I don't know where you're at on this path of being out of God's will or seeking your own will. I don't know, but tonight, here's the message. The message is trying to repair what you have broken when you step out of God's will. Tonight, I want to show you three points and then we'll be done. First of all, and this is what Balaam did, you must realize your mistake. Verse number 34, it's really very simple in Scripture. The, the angel's talking to Balaam. He points out that he couldn't get his attention. And, and no matter what he did, the angel was not speaking or clearly visible to Balaam. And verse 34, And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displeased thee, I will get me back again. You know what he could have said? I'm a prophet. You know, he could have said, I was just trying to do what I thought was right. I was just trying to, to figure out a way where this prophet could get by with a little bit better than meager fare. He's saying, I'm a prophet that lives very simply, but I just saw an opportunity, God, and I stepped through that door, and, and, and I just don't understand why you always limit me and why you don't take care of me. And God, there was an opportunity, and I took full advantage of it, and now it's like you don't even want me to go where I want to go. He could have said all that. But you know what he said? I have sinned. You ever noticed how hard it is to admit you're wrong? Have you ever noticed why it is doubly more painful when it's to your wife? (laughs) You're around a group of guys, you're talking sports stats, and you say the wrong year a guy was drafted, you're like, oh, that's right, my bad. When it's around your wife, you're like, no, put the phone down, you're not Googling it. (laughs) It's terrible. And there's something about our pride that does not want to be wrong. And, and, and I've never met anybody that's comfortable being wrong. I mean, some people should be as much as they are wrong, but, but I, it's just not easy to admit we're wrong. But sometimes when we start to follow our own paths, 
Kind of like the hymn writer said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. He's saying, I feel a draw away from you, and when I get there, I want to be able to admit that I am raw. It's simple. The first thing you can do before you can ever step back into God's will is admit that you're out of it. Amen. And just say, God, I need your help. Amen. Verse 31 kind of tells us very, something very important. I drew your attention to it as we started reading through the passage. The Bible says, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. Why did not God do that before? Why did God not just open them from the get-go? I mean, we've gone through a whole plot twist with this whole donkey and crushing his foot against the wall, and, and the donkey had to talk. I mean, why did God not just open his eyes before? Well, maybe Balaam wasn't ready to admit he was wrong. And now after all this, and, and Balaam's talked to a donkey, like somebody pointed out the other day, like it was no big deal. Like he spent a lot of time talking to animals or something. We've gone through all this and now the Bible says, and the Lord opened his eyes. Man, I'm praying for this church. I'm praying for some members in this church that the Lord would open their eyes and help them see that they are wrong. I'm praying that God would speak to them. And there's really a few ways that God speaks to us. First of all, sometimes He speaks through us through a sermon. If, if you're coming to church, why, why do we come to church? Amen. I mean, you ought not come to church for the handshakes or the, the, the backpats. You ought not come to church for the, the wonderful gossip or the few hours break from the ch children. You get to throw them on Miss Mary Bernie and, and all her workers. You just say, Woo, I finally get a break. And that's not why you ought to come to church. You ought to come to church to hear from God. And if you don't have confidence in the pulpit ministry of this church and in the pastors of this church to preach God's unfiltered word, not their own convictions, not their own preferences, but God's pure word, if you don't have confidence in that, find somewhere that you can have confidence in it. Sometimes God will... You'll come to church just expecting a normal day and God will rip your heart out. And, uh, and like the Bible says... It, pricks our heart. It just cuts us to the quick. And the preacher may not even be preaching on our topic, but it's like the Holy Spirit is directly saying, you know you're out of God's will, sinner. You know you need to get right, sinner. And you're almost in the back of your mind thinking, preacher, shut up. Preacher, shut up. I need to go to the altar. Preacher, shut up. And, and you say it respectfully. You're not saying, hey, preacher, get done. But you're saying, I need to get right with God right now. I've been there. Sometimes God will use a sermon. Sometimes God will use circumstances. Like in Balaam's life with the donkey, he started to, to, to really, his life got very difficult in this deal, dealing with the donkey and the angel. His life got very, very difficult. You know, there's people all in Scripture who had circumstances dictate to them how they were out of God's will. You remember the prodigal son? There was no preacher present in the hog pen. Amen. There was no Nathan there saying, Thou art the man! No, no, no. You know who was there? A pig. And that pig probably smelled. And the food he was eating probably stank. And he's sitting there in the mud pit. And he's a, a working there for that farm. And he says, How many of my father's servants have bread and to spare? And I sit here with these hogs. He looked and surveyed his circumstances and said, what am I doing? Sometimes God can speak to you and, and, and through circumstances and say, you used to be much closer to me than you are and your life is falling apart and it's like you won't even admit you're wrong. Sometimes he'll use sermons, sometimes he'll use circumstances, sometimes, and this is a sad one, he'll use sorrow. Sometimes God will have to go through very, very severe actions to get his children right. You don't believe me. Naomi lost everyone in her life besides her daughter-in-laws before she got back in God's will. Christian, don't get to the point where God has to resort 
to sorrowful circumstances before you'll admit, God, I, I know I'm wrong. Parents, we have such a responsibility with every decision we make because our decisions don't only affect us. The decisions that a parent makes today echo in the lives of their children for years. You say, I don't believe you, Brother Andrew. You make one decision on one friend in your child's life, and that friend may be the one that gives them their first beer. That may be the friend they get in trouble with and have to go spend the night in jail and call you in the morning. You just don't know how important your decisions are. So, so parents, be very sure when it comes to whether you're following God's will or your will. And when you realize you're following your will instead of God's will, what do you got to do? Be willing to admit you're wrong. As much as it may hurt, I promise the circumstances will hurt much worse. The sorrow will hurt much worse. All that you'll have to deal with will hurt much worse. Just be big enough to say, God, I'm sorry. First of all, you must realize your mistake. Secondly, you must repair what is broken. You must repair what is broken. Verse 34, uh, I want you to see this. Balaam is now, after he's fully well admitted he's sinned, he's acknowledged to sin before God, and now he starts to say, God, what can I do to make it better? And I believe hollow confession prayers with no uh, fix to get the problem resolved has led to more Christians bathing and wallowing in sin than anything. A whole lot of God forgive me, but not a lot of God how to help me fix it. And Balaam not only says, God, I've sinned and I'm sorry. He says, now God, I've got to make some changes in my life. He says, I've got to repair what's broken. First of all, there's a priority change. Verse number 34, towards the end of the passage. He says, I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displeased thee. When he set off on that donkey, do you think he was much worried about pleasing God? No. Now his priorities have completely flipped. And do you know what repentance means? A complete changing of mind. In other words, it's agreeing with God about a matter. When you repent, you ought to say, God, I know I'm wrong and I want to be right. God, I realize I've made mistakes and I want you to help me mend what I've uh, undone. He's saying here, God... If it pleases you, your will, your way, whatever I have to do to get in that, Lord, if it pleases you, that's where I want to be. I believe at this point in Balaam's life, he'd have charged hell with a water pistol. God, if it pleases you, I'll be the first one at the gates to meet old Satan. God, if it pleases you, I'll I'll jump down the throat of the well. God, if it pleases you, I'll build an ark. He's saying, God, if it pleases you, that's my priority. And when you agree with God on His will, you tend to be more fervent in your pursuit of His will. Not only a priority change, but secondly, a promise to return. Verse 34 says, If it displease thee, notice this, I will get me back again. (laughs) He says, God, I'll go back to where I was. Back where I knew I could call on you in a moment's notice and get your will. I I do get somewhat fatigued with Christians going on constant retreats. But every now and again, it's a good thing to go back to where we've been. This morning, preacher preached on slipping. Be careful not to slip. We've got to occasionally reevaluate our life and like the psalmist, just say, Lord, you try my heart. You try me, and if there be a, any wicked way, Lord, you try me. And what Balaam's saying is, I will go back to where I was good with you. He had a promise to return. The Bible says, and this is a promise from God, just like all those promises that we love and cling on to, but this is a promise that we not often keep, or, or we not often scream out from the mountaintops. But the Bible says in Proverbs 28, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. You know, that's a promise just like you're saved until the day of redemption. 
just like you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, just like no man can pluck you out of your Father's hands, uh, for no man is greater than Him. Uh, uh, just like all of those wonderful promises in the Bible, another promise is the person that covers their sin will not prosper. But he who confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy. Now that's a promise. And, and Balaam here is not saying, God, I want to get right with you. God's saying, uh, Balaam's saying, God, I want to get right with you and I will do whatever it takes to get right with you. We oftentimes go to youth camp and I hear decisions made after decisions made after decisions made to the point where I preach against decisions. You say, no, Brother Andrew, I promise you I do. But the reason so many decisions are not fulfilled is they are promised with no plan. Their hopes with no direction when they return home. They know they need to get rid of friends, but how they're actually going to set up that meeting to say, hey, I can't be around you anymore, that's a whole other story. And in terms of getting back to God's will, it's really not a lot different. We don't just have to say, God, I want to get back to where it was good with you. we got to say, God, whatever it takes. If it takes me spending more time on my knees, if it takes me reading my Bible more, God, I want to be right with you, and whatever it is, that's what I'll do. He had to admit he was wrong. He also had to repair what was broken. Thirdly, and this is the final point, he had to realize that he may have done permanent damage. You see, there are repercussions for getting out of God's will, unfortunately. I wish I could say that every story ended up like the prodigal son, like he never lost anything, but they don't all end that way. In this passage, one might even tend to think, well, he got his own way once he agreed with God, and once he kind of fought the battle with the donkey, he kind of got his own way. Oh, he didn't get his way at all. I want you to notice with me, first of all, in verse 35, a confined path he had to walk. The Bible says, And the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that shall thou speak. It was almost as if Balaam now was put on a shorter lease than even he was before. And remember when Balaam first said, I can't go with anybody unless God's with me. He even was saying, I can't do anything outside of God's will. Now the Holy Spirit, now the angel of God, now God Himself has to tell Balaam, okay, now you can go, but the only thing you can say is stuff that I tell you to say. Imagine what his life could have been if he had stayed in God's perfect will. You see, it's hard for us to even think about what it could be. You know the Bible's full of what-if people? What if they'd have just stayed right with God? What could have happened? Think about Samson. Samson was one of the first people in all of the Bible to have a, a clear mark of God's hand on his life. There was nothing significantly special about David. Okay? David was a man after God's own heart, but you look at David, even Samuel says, I don't know about this one. When Samson walked into a room, it was clear he was God's man. And if he walked in the room and nobody thought he was God's man, he'd say, all right, hey, hey, how long did it take y'all to build these gates? All right, let, let me take care of that problem. And he'd just pick up the gates off the side of the city and walk them all the way up to the top of the hill and says, now fix that. Samson was a man whose God hand was on. Samson was a judge. From the time when Samson was born, he was set up as a leader. He was not fashioned to be a leader. He did not become a leader. He was born to be a leader. And yet he blew it all. You know why? Because he stepped out of God's will into his own will. What if? What if he would have just stayed? Can you imagine what God could have done with a man that can take the jawbone of a donkey and slay all the men around him? Can you imagine what God could have done with a man that could just walk into a city and be the strongest, the biggest, and all the other Philistinian men just run for the hills? Can you imagine what God could have done? What if? Could you imagine what God could have done with 12 spies that were like Joshua and Caleb? 
There they are on the precipice of God's perfect will for their life. Man, this plan has been all the way back to Abraham. This plan God has had in the works for years and years and years and years. Israelite after Israelite was born. They went through slavery. Now God has fulfilled His promise. They're standing on the brink of the promised land. They're looking over into Canaan. And and I can't imagine the anticipation that every single Jew must have been feeling that day. Oh, we've wondered. Oh, we've been in slavery. But God's going to give us our promised land. This is our land. This is my Father's land. Boy, am I excited about this only to have some backslidden spies show up and say, uh, just hold your horses. There's no way we can take care of that land. We went in there and there were giants and, and even the fruit's big. Even if you wanted to eat the fruit, you couldn't eat the fruit. You, you would not imagine what's going on in there. The Bible says they were as grasshoppers in their own sight. What if? What if every single one of those men had come back? Yeah, there's a lot of problems, but I know a God who can take care of every single one of them. What if every man was in agreement with Joshua and Caleb? I'll tell you one thing that would have happened. Moses would have made it. One of the saddest stories in all the Bible to me is Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. After what that guy went through? I don't blame Moses. I blame ten, ten backslidden spies. What if? What if Balaam would have stayed at home? Who knows what God could have done through the sermons that would be preached of a man who was so resolute in his fellowship of God that he just stayed no matter what temptation came down the path. Can you imagine? We can't. What if? Christian, what if you never stepped outside of God's will and started following your own? What if? What if every teenager found God's will and did God's will in their life? I promise you we'd have teenagers that were happy. I promise you we'd have teenagers that were healthy. And I promise you we'd have strong families for the next generation. Oh, they wouldn't all be rich. Oh, they all wouldn't be problem-free, but they would be people who were following God wholeheartedly. What if? I mean, could you imagine if we could follow God like that? But Balaam now has to walk a restricted path. One that has God's hand so clearly upon him. One that says, Balaam, I wish I could give you liberty. Balaam, I wish I could give you some some space to wiggle. But Balaam, because of this, you now have to only say what I tell you to say. What a shame. A a, a confined path. Secondly, a compromising perception. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Well, remember how Balak got Balaam there in the first place? After the first set of princes came, what did Balaam say? Well, I can't go no matter what what you may do, no matter what you may send, I can't go. The second set of princes came and he says, okay, I'll go this time. You don't think that Balak stored that in the back of his memory bank? You don't think that Balak now thinks that there's a man of God who will compromise with just a little pressure? Amen. Let me show you in the Bible that he did. Take your Bibles to... Uh, well, we're, we're here in chapter 22. Uh, or Go back to 22 and, and verse 37. Notice this. Balak said unto Balaam, Did not I earnestly send unto thee to call thee? Wherefore camest thou not unto me? Am, am I not indeed uh, able to promote thee to honor? And Balaam said, Balak, lo, I am come unto thee. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God putteth in my mouth, that shall I speak. In verse 41, And it came to pass on the morrow that Balak took Balaam and brought him up into the high places of Baal, that thence he might see the utmost part of the people. And Balak is essentially putting Balaam in a position to fulfill his obligation to Balak. He says, okay, I brought you all this way. Now I need you to do what you came for. You need to curse Israel and you need to bless us. Well, verse 20, or 1 of chapter 23, And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven, uh, 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 seven oxen and seven rams. And, and go down to verse number 4, And God met Balaam, and he said unto him, I have prepared seven altars, and I have offered un, upon every altar a bullock and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, and said, Return unto Balak, and thus th- shalt thou speak. 
And he returned to him, and lo, he stood by his burnt sacrifice, he and all his princes of Moab. And he took up his parable and said, Balak the king of Moab hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come defy Israel. Now look down at verse 13 there. Uh, Balaam does not do that. In fact, Balaam tells Balak, I cannot do anything unless God tells me, and God tells him not to curse Israel. Now verse 13, watch Balak's reaction. And Balak said unto him, Come, I pray thee, with me unto another place, from whence thou mayest see them. Thou shalt see but the utmost part of them, and shalt not see them all, and curse me them from thence. What just happened? He set him up in a place to curse the people. Balaam says, I can't curse them. What does Balak do? He says, I'll just come a little farther. I'll show you a little bit more. I'm going to set up another place where you can curse them. Maybe in the back of his mind, Balak's thinking, well, he compromised the first time. Maybe he'll compromise this time. Now, fast forward there to chapter 23, verse 27. Uh, Well, we'll go to 26. But Balaam answered and said unto Balak, Told not I these, saying, All that the Lord speaketh, that I must do. Another time it happens where Balaam does not curse Israel, and he curses uh, uh, Balak and his nation, And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee, I will bring thee unto another place. Peradventure will please God that thou mayest curse me from thence. Look, do you see what's happening? Balak thinks that Balaam will change his mind with a whim. You say, maybe if I can give you a little different viewpoint. Maybe if I can show you a little bit more wealth. Maybe if I can just, maybe God's will will change. Maybe in the back of Balak's mind he said, it did the first time. No, God's will never changed. But Balaam's life made it seem as if God's will changed. And now Balak has the impression that if a Christian wants to do whatever they want to do, they can make it happen. So time after time after time, he sets him up in another spot to curse Israel. Balaam says, I can't do it. What a shame that in Balak's mind, he now thinks God is so wishy-washy that his children just do whatever they want. Do you think that there's ever been a Christian that has given a a non-Christian the idea that we can kind of do whatever we want and get away with it? Do you think there's ever been a Christian that's given somebody the idea that God's will does change based upon circumstances or or problems that come or or financial restraints? Do you think there's ever been somebody that sent a a bad sign that God was trying to change somehow His plan for our life? I believe there has been. Balaam did. Balak says, well, maybe just come over here. God and His will do not change. When God says go, He means go. When God says stay, He means stay. It's such a shame that now Balak's perception of Balaam is that he's a compromiser. That he'll just kind of fold when everything gets tough. Remember David, when Nathan was looking him in the face, what did David say? One of the, the biggest condemnations that Nathan had for David after uh, the confrontation that he gave him. Here was one of the biggest problems with the, what David did. He says, Thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. You and your unfaithfulness to God have made it seem like our God is not all-powerful. And like living a life that's worthy of Him is not worth wasting your time. Nathan looks at David and says, You have messed up but you think that it's just you. You have given everybody a chance to look at our God and say, that's what a Christian looks like. How many of you have ever heard and are growing weary of people saying, the reason I'm not in church is because there's a whole bunch of hypocrites there. I am getting sick and tired of it. You know the reason they probably say that in a lot of cases? It's because it's true. Not every case. There are some cases I think people are just trying to craft an excuse and that's the one they want to give. But I believe there are some people who have been genuinely hurt by so-called Christians who would not live a life that was consecrated to God and now they have given great occasion for the enemies of God to say, just a bunch of hypocrites in the church. What is the perception of the world of this church? 
When, when somebody drives down our driveway and they see us hosting a trunk or treat or a fall festival or a bus bowl or, or they see something like that, what do they think about us? Do they think, oh, there's a church just trying to get numbers? Or do they think, oh, there's a church just trying to get people in for money? Or do they think, there's a church who's giving their time so that bus kids can come to church? What is the perception of the world of this church? The Bible tells us that we should perform good deeds not so that we could get into heaven, not so that we could have everybody's applause, but our good deeds would be the thing that would point people to Christ. Are we pointing people there? When I was in children's church, Brother Brian Cohn was one of the fellows who ran my children's church when I was growing up. I've had several folks, Brother Jim did it, Brother Brian did it for a little while, but Brother Brian Cohn did it as well. Brother Brian Cohn used to have all sorts of games. He, back then, they had a, a gospel computer, and it was just this big deal, and it had a bunch of flashing Christmas lights on it, and the kids loved it, you know, it would tell us answers, it would give us stuff, it was awesome. Back then, every week we had puppets. Every week. In fact, a fella, I meant to tell this to the bus workers, but a fella the other day drove into our parking lot, made a U-turn and said, hey, does this church have puppets? And I said, yes, sir, sometimes. Now, we ain't had them in a long time, but we have had them some time ago. And uh, back then, the, and I, I'm sure it's fun now, but I remember having such a good time when we went to children's church. I think a good time is good. I also believe there's a time when a kid ought to sit down and hear God's word preached, and they do every single week. We had a good time. But one of my favorite games that Brother Cohn ever did was a game called The Whole Enchilada. I don't know where it came from. I think Brian just woke up hungry one night and needed a game. I really don't know. But The Whole Enchilada, that was a good game. Essentially, the game broke down like this. You were given a, an award, you were to earn an award somehow by maybe answering a Bible question or you got to choose one of three items. And then that item would sometimes be a candy bar, that item would sometimes be a, a roll of toilet paper, whatever it was, there was all sorts of prizes there. The toilet paper is a good prize if you need it sometimes. But there was just all sorts of, of prizes there, but the game culminated like this. Now, you've got your prize. Your prize is such and such. Maybe it's a Snickers bar, maybe it's a roll of toilet paper, who knows. But now you have the opportunity to go for the whole enchilada. You know, he uses game show voice, and all the kids... And you just felt chills go down your spine. You're thinking, yeah, I'm going to get the whole enchilada. You may be holding a Snickers bar. You may be holding a paper clip. It just didn't matter, but the whole enchilada. And the way Brian did it was so masterful. I mean, he had you so excited for what the whole enchilada could be. He would say stuff like, it could be a car. Well, I'm eight, so that wouldn't help me very much. <laughs> you know, he would just... He would paint it to make you think that there was like a pony behind the curtain and you needed a pony. You know, you were excited. And I remember watching kid after kid. They'd say, yeah, I want the whole enchilada. And almost every time that somebody actually got the whole enchilada, they would trade like a candy bar for like the inside roll of the toilet paper, not even the, the stuff you actually use. And what seemed to be so amazing was so anticlimactic because you're like, <laughs> what a terrible decision you just made. You're holding a Snickers bar and yet you weren't satisfied with a Snickers bar. And then, no doubt, the kid who would say, no, I want to take my Snickers bar. And you're thinking in the back of your mind, now there's a smart kid. Then someone comes behind the curtain with some Nintendo 64 and you're thinking, wait, last week was the inside of a roll of toilet paper and this week's a Nintendo 64? Is somebody back there just price switching? What's going on? Never failed. I never saw one person win the whole enchilada and be excited about it. And I saw thousands of kids say, no, I'm settling, and not get the whole enchilada and immediately regret that decision because it's like the greatest prize ever. 
You know, when it comes to God and His will, every single perfect will is a wonderful whole enchilada. It's always perfect. It's always great. In your life, it is the source of perfect peace and contentment when you know, you know, the benefits of God's will are great. Don't get me wrong. But what's even better than the benefits from it is the fact that you lay your head on your pillow at night knowing that you and your God are at peace and ease with one another. And you know that God is pleased with your life. Oh great, I'm happy I have a wonderful wife and I'm so thankful for my wonderful daughters. But when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I say, God, I'm so thankful that you still hear my prayers. And God, I'm so thankful that you still love me. And God, I'm so thankful that when a sermon's preached, you still speak to my heart. God, I'm thankful for all of these factors. Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm in your will. But you know what happens when a Christian decides to walk in their will? They trade the whole enchilada for something that is so meaningless. And I'll close with this. I've never once seen someone settle and be happy. A Christian that is at odds with their maker is at odds with everyone. There's no peace when your father, like a loving father, is chastening you, trying to get you back into the fold. There's no contentment when God is saying, you know you're outside of my will. Don't settle. Tonight, have enough courage, enough Christianity about you to say, God, if I'm out of your will, I will admit that I'm wrong. God, and and now that I've admitted I'm wrong, God, I pray that you would help me repair what I have undone, knowing full well that when I'm outside of your will, I may have to settle for things that I'm not pleased with.